Hi, this is Father Dominic Legg, director of the Thomistic Institute. Thanks for tuning in to today's lecture. Every talk on this podcast was originally delivered at an in-person event for college students, perhaps at one of our campus chapters or at a Thomistic Institute retreat or conference. Students today are hungry for the truth, and you know how important it is for them to find it. If this podcast has impacted you, that's because someone gave a donation to make these talks possible. So I'm wondering, would you do the same for someone else this December? Even a gift of $10 or $20 has a big impact. Your gift will bring the truth to college students and to many others in 2023 if you give before December 31st. And you can make a tax-deductible donation at www.tomisticinstitute.org donate. That's www.tomisticinstitute.org donate. Thank you for your generosity. And may God bless you this Advent and Christmas season. I'm sure that most, um, if not all of you, are aware, at least on some level, that 2017 was the 500th anniversary of what's regarded as the beginning of the Protestant Reformation, the writing uh, by Martin Luther of his 95 Theses. Historical commemorations in general cast a temporary spotlight on we historians who otherwise labor away in our respective fields without fanfare, without much attention, providing an opportunity to step back, take stock, and ask questions about the long-term implications and the influences, the legacies, and the significance of the historical phenomena that's being commemorated. In my case, and as it turned out, I inadvertently got a head start. Because, as Zach just mentioned, in 2012, I published a book called The Unintended Reformation, How a Religious Revolution Secularized Society, which is about the ways in which Europe and North America today can't properly be understood apart from understanding the Reformation era, circa 1520 to 1650. I definitely did not expect the book to garner over 100 reviews to initiate conversations that uh, have continued really now for a decade and that got quite a lot of attention, especially in the quincentennial year of 2017. In addition, also as Zach mentioned, I've written a differently structured, a shorter book intended for a broader audience, which came out in 2017, uh, it, that takes up some of the same themes, but organized in a very different way. And that book is uh, entitled Rebel in the Ranks, Martin Luther, the Reformation, and the conflicts that continue to shape our world. What I'd like to do tonight is, is present something of a thrust of the main argument from those books in a, a ridiculously compressed, highly abbreviated form. Um, amazing as an, and incredible as it may seem, the long-term impact of the Reformation era did not end when 2017 became 2018. Notwithstanding all the fanfare for the 500th anniversary, all those long-term influences continued, and you know what, they've continued right to the present as well. This is a, a, a phenomenon um, you know, when, when the next shiny object comes along when a, a year ending in a zero, especially double zero, comes along. So when we went from 2017 to 2018, suddenly it was like the end of the 100th, the 100th anniversary of the end of the World War I. So let's turn all our attention to that now. Unfortunately, that's about as much um, uh, sustained uh, attention, I, I fear, as the wider public can marshal when it comes to thinking seriously about the long-term impact of uh, the past. But I'm starting to sound like a whiny historian, so I'm going to go away from that. Okay, so this evening, um, drawing on uh, ideas from, from my books, I'm going to make a broad argument with two main components. The first is that the Protestant Reformation 
was not only important in the 16th century, but that its influence persists and it remains essential for understanding our world today. And that has absolutely nothing to do with an individual's religious commitments per se. The second claim is that in the early 21st century, the Reformation's influence is by and large indirect and in many respects, the opposite of what any of the major reformers of the 16th century, including Martin Luther and John Calvin, wanted their reform of Western Christendom to achieve. Because the long-term, unintended, unanticipated, and yet undeniable overriding outcome of the Reformation has been the secularization of Western society. Western modernity in its dominant institutions, ideas, values, and practices, including in the United States, is not an outgrowth or an expansion of the Protestant Reformation in any of its 16th century expressions. It is rather a reaction against the Reformation era and the way in which its doctrinal disagreements and concrete conflicts made Christianity into an unprecedented problem to which modernity has been the response in ways that have facilitated secularization. My remarks then this evening are entirely about the historical consequences of the Reformation era. They're not at all about which, if any, among the many Christian traditions that emerged from it is right or wrong, good or bad, in what proportions, the criteria for assessing these issues, and so forth. As far as I know and intend, my argument is also consistent with Catholic truth claims, yet without, I hope, in any way being dependent in any explicit way or dependent on them, or for that matter, on anything faith-based from any other religious tradition. So how did a 16th century religious revolution that sought to make society more Christian than its leaders thought it was end up by the late 20th century producing just the opposite outcome? We have a major paradox here, a counterintuitive historical reality, a case of unintended outcomes. The first thing to be said then is that the Reformation's influence on the eventual secularization of society was complex, anything but immediate, mostly indirect, and very much unintended. This influence was not, in my view, primarily of the sort made famous by the great historically-minded German sociologist Max Weber. I regard as mistaken the fairly common position of which there are many variations that a once enchanted and supposedly magical medieval worldview was disenchanted and secularized through something either inherent in Protestantism or intrinsic to modern science. The Reformation per se did not disenchant the world or secularize society. 16th century Protestant writings are filled with copious references to divine providence and presence. As we will see, what happened as a result of Protestant reformers' actions, but very much against their intentions, was the making of Christianity itself into a major problem that had to be addressed and the series of ways in which it was addressed, beginning in the 17th century, laid the grounds and established the basis for the eventual secularization of Western society. In order to understand any major historical phenomenon, we must have some grasp of the historical realities that preceded it, else we can't know what developments uh, were new or assess why they mattered. And in the case of the Protestant Reformation, that means starting with a multidimensional contextual grasp of the late medieval Christianity in the 15th and early 16th centuries in Western Europe, in a society and culture in which Christianity was, 
to put it paradoxically, much more than mere religion. Today, religion is your individual choice, including the option not to be religious. And it's typically considered a distinct area of life among others, separate from your career, professional relationships, recreational activities, consumer behavior, and so on. Neither of these things was true in early 16th century Europe, except for the tiny percentage of Jews within Latin Christendom who chose to remain Jewish despite their frequent mistreatment by Christians. Religion was not a matter of choice, nor was it separate from the rest of life. Becoming a Christian was the result of the taken for granted centuries old ritual of infant baptism and religion was not hived off from everything else. It didn't stand apart from the exercise of power or the administration of justice, but was meant to inform both politics and law. Christianity wasn't segregated from the buying and selling of goods and pursuit of profit. Its ethical teachings sought to circumscribe economic transactions and to restrain greed. Education was imbued with Christian ideas from the teaching of ABCs in humble small town primary schools through instruction in one of Europe's 60 or so universities. Social relationships and gender expectations were inseparable from Christian norms and both public and private morality were conceived in Christian terms. Christianity was meant to influence not only how Christians worshiped and prayed, but also how they ruled and worked bought and sold, taught and learned, related to their families and understood their lives. In short, religion was about much more than what we usually mean by religion today. Now, none of this implies that very many people behaved like saints. Far from it. That was one problem the Reformation sought to address, although it was not its leader's main concern. Conscientious Christians had been aware of the problems long before Martin Luther appeared on the scene. Sinful shortcomings in the church and the lives of its members, including its clerical leaders, affected everything else because of how intertwined religion was with the rest of life. For centuries before the Protestant Reformation, the gap between Christian ideals and lived realities was a problem lamented by men and women who were saintly and sought reforms. St. Bernard of Clairvaux in the 12th century, for example, St. Catherine of Siena in the 14th. Without question, there were major perceived problems in the late medieval church, manifest in the Western schism, conflicts over authority between conciliarists and papalists, worldly Renaissance popes and cardinals, greedy members of the clergy, and ill-informed laypeople. So no wonder there was a reformation, the traditional explanation went considering the corruption of the church, the decadence of the papacy, and the superstition of the laity. Along came Luther to save the day and rediscover the gospel. But more than half a century of scholarship by medieval historians has corrected this picture with an enormous amount of evidence about the vitality and the vigor of late medieval Christianity. From late lay Bible reading in the vernacular to the voluntary lay support of parish churches and religious orders, to the enthusiastic participation in confraternities and much more. In fact, 15th century Christians, high and low, were probably more self-consciously devout on balance than their predecessors in any preceding century. The Reformation emerged as much out of religious commitment as a reaction against the church's shortcomings. 
In fact, it shouldn't surprise us all that much that these two things went together. People tend to criticize and want to fix things that they care about. Fundamental for explaining the long-term impact of the Reformation and how our secularized present realities contrast with its leaders' most basic objectives is the fact that religion wasn't something separate from other areas of life. It wasn't something you could step away from or decide you didn't want to affect your life. You didn't have to be devout, but you could not avoid living in a Christian culture. Religion was never just about religion. It influenced everything else for better or worse. So because religion was interconnected with everything else, changes in and challenges to religion would affect everything else. And the Reformation brought changes and challenges in Latin Christianity unlike anything else in the Middle Ages in its geographical scope, its staying power, and its transformative influence. The Reformation affected not only religion, but also everything related to religion in the 16th century. In other words, essentially every major area of human life. And those enduring changes and consequential disagreements started with an Augustinian friar and university professor anxious about his own salvation. There's no understanding the Protestant Reformation without Martin Luther, but his improbable story between the autumn of 1517 and the spring of 1521, or even up until his death in 1546, is not coextensive with the history of the Reformation. Whether one loves Luther's theology or can't stand it is irrelevant to Luther's historical influence, which is unquestionable, massive, and enduring, albeit eventually in ways he would have found appalling. Luther matters historically because of what he set in motion, the basis on which he set it in motion, and how transformative both of these have been. Perhaps the greatest irony of the Reformation was the way in which Luther's cornerstone principle, God's word in scripture, understood as a self-sufficient, clear basis for Christian faith and life, was simultaneously and from the very start also its stumbling block in ways that led to the disembedding of Christianity from the rest of life. This disembedding is what I mean by secularization, namely the declining influence of religion in shared public life. All those areas of human life that in the Middle Ages, in the Reformation era, Christianity informed, for better or worse, politics, law, economics, education, social relationships, family life, morality, and culture at large. A corollary of this process was the emergence of the familiar conception of religion as something separate and separable, distinct and distinguishable from shared public life, because it came to be regarded essentially as a matter of individuals' interior beliefs, plus their preferred worship practices and devotional behavior. There were two principal reasons for this process of disembedding. First, to pick up what I was talking about a moment ago, the turn to scripture alone, to the Bible as a supposedly self-sufficient and perspicuous foundation for Christian faith and life, independent in principle of ecclesiastical tradition and the Roman church's authority, yielded nothing close to a consensus about the meaning and implication of God's word. If it had done so, the history of the Reformation and of Protestantism during and since the 16th century would have looked utterly different. Instead, 
from the very beginning of the German Reformation in the early 1520s, the turn to scripture produced an open-ended and variable range of rival truth claims about what God's word meant. As 16th century Christians were well aware, but some ecumenically minded Christians today, however well-intentioned, seem to have forgotten. I know there's some philosophers in the room, so you'll appreciate this next phrase. The principle of non-contradiction meant it was impossible for all of these conflicting truth claims actually to be true wherever they contradicted one another. This meant that not all of them could belong to knowledge. Eventually, after a long early modern interlude in which theology was politically privileged and insulated in the confessional universities and academies of rival Catholic and Protestant regimes, this fact would contribute to the secularization of knowledge and the exclusion of theology from universities. Religious studies departments would eventually be installed in the place of theology faculties, with religion studied on the basis of the same naturalist, methodological, and metaphysical assumptions that govern the pursuit of modern knowledge in all academic disciplines. In the Reformation era, disagreements about Christian truth among rival antagonists produced endless and profuse doctrinal controversy. Anyone familiar with the sources of the period knows this, provided that you read widely enough and in different traditions. Attempts to overcome the unsought pluralism through a given interpretation of the biblical text, appeals to the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, new revelation from God, or the use of discursive reason, in fact, only augmented the pluralism that they sought to overcome, providing still more things about which Christians could and did disagree. Unintended early modern Protestant doctrinal disagreement is thus a critically important distance source for contemporary Western pluralism pertaining to questions of values and meaning. Because these kinds of disagreements about answers to basic life questions have never gone away. We simply experience them now in different forms and with many more rival secular as well as religious truth claims in a liberal institutional context that permits and protects them all rather than privileging one or prohibiting any, so long as their respective protagonists are politically obedient. The Reformation sought a return to the pure word of God, uncluttered by human traditions, pagan philosophies, and priestly manipulations. It resulted instead in an open-ended profusion of competing truth claims about the Bible's meaning and God's will, that problematized the epistemological status of the truth claims and raised the specter of radical doctrinal skepticism and relativism via pluralism already in the 1520s. Quote, whoever has gone astray in the faith may thereafter believe whatever he wants to. Everything is equally valid, unquote. That's from 1526. It doesn't come from a defender of the Roman Catholic Church decrying the dangers of Protestant individualism. That is Martin Luther decrying the threat of Huldrych Zwingli, his Protestant theological uh, rival. Most Reformation scholars ordinarily think about the field rather differently. They distinguish sharply between the politically supported and therefore influential magisterial Reformation and the usually suppressed and therefore numerically, socially, and politically marginal radical Reformation. 
To be sure, only two major Protestant traditions exerted a widespread, long-standing early modern influence, Lutheranism and Reformed Protestantism, or Calvinism for short, more comfortable with that term. I'm not going to go into specifics in a, in a talk like this. Here, for the sake just of, of simplicity, I'm also including the post-Henrician non-Marian Church of England in the Reformed Protestant tradition. Okay, I, I see some heads nodding. That's good. Some people know what I'm I, I know what I'm talking about when I make these kind of shorthand. Okay, we can talk more about it if you want to. But in fact, there were hundreds of divergent and rival anti-Roman interpretations of scripture in the Reformation era and beyond. But here is an instance in which an integrative cross-confessional approach to the period as a whole can shed new light by helping to correct common scholarly oversights. Biblical interpretation and the exercise of power are two different things. They should not be conflated, but distinguished for purposes of historical understanding. When we distinguish them, we see that Lutheranism and Reformed Protestantism, again, including the Church of England and what we can start to call Anglicanism, starting with the restoration of 1660, that Lutheranism and Reformed Protestantism were actually the great exceptions of the Reformation just the opposite of how they've usually been and still tend to be regarded, precisely because from among all the various anti-Roman interpretations of God's word, only they secured the enduring support of political authorities in their respective cities, territories, or countries. Unlike all other anti-Roman Christians, Lutherans and Reformed Protestants found political refuge in cities, territories, and kingdoms in which they were not proscribed, persecuted, and punished. The Radical Reformation was important not because it had any widespread social, cultural, or political impact in the Reformation era. And here I'm setting aside the German Peasants' War, the mid-1520s, the Anabaptist Kingdom of Munster in the mid-1530s, and the English Revolution in the 1640s and 50s. The Radical Reformation is important because it shows what the Reformation as a whole and as such produced when it wasn't being overseen and controlled by confessional political authorities. The same open-ended heterogeneity of divergent views about the meaning of God's word is evident today in the radically different political context of liberal democratic states, which of course deliberately avoid any explicit religious prescriptions. The significance of the foundational appeal to the Bible within the Reformation as a whole becomes clear only when we historically reintegrate the radical and the magisterial reformations and distinguish the rejection of the Roman Catholic Church from the exercise of political power. That Lutheranism and Reformed Protestantism were politically supported and therefore socially influential is no reason to regard either as theologically or exegetically normative, as if justification by faith alone through grace alone were therefore true and somehow the clear cornerstones of Christian doctrine. Obviously, Mennonites, Familists, Socinians, other radical Protestants in the Reformation era did not agree. Scripture alone, unfettered, unconstrained, lacking political oversight, produced an open-ended plethora of rival claims about what Christianity was and implied. Scripture interpreted by religious authorities with the backing of political authorities, aka Lutheranism and Reformed Protestantism, produced confessional Protestant cities, territories, and states analogous to early modern Catholic confessional regimes. 
enter the long-term intellectual dimension of secularization. It is no accident that the Enlightenment and modern philosophy started in the 17th century. Christian ideas about reality, human nature, and human life had provided Christendom's intellectual backbone during the Middle Ages. During the Reformation era, that backbone was fractured. Theological controversy that exploded in the 1520s remained unresolved in the 1650s, after the Thirty Years' War and the English Revolution. How could entrenched religious opponents agree about human nature, morality, the nature of government, and other issues at once so fundamental and so divisive? They would have to agree to disagree. They would have to set aside their religious views when they embarked on common endeavors. Theology, as a religious intellectual endeavor, would have to be separated from philosophy and the investigation of the natural world, eventually to become known as science, neither of which would or could depend on anything divisively religious. Modern philosophy and the Enlightenment in its various national manifestations were secularizing intellectual reactions to the problems inherited from the Reformation era. New ways of trying to ground morality, justify political authority, and conceive society were sought. Descriptions of and prescriptions for human life would have to avoid references to contentious religious notions if they hoped to persuade people that disagreed about them. If you didn't want just to keep preaching to the choir, you had to learn how to sing a different song. I turn now to the second main reason for the eventual disembedding of Christianity from the rest of life in the wake of the Reformation, one at least as influential as the first, namely the on and off religio-political conflicts between the 1520s and the 1640s, especially those between magisterial Protestants and Catholics in different regions of Europe. What I refer to in my book, Rebel in the Ranks, as the wars of more than religion. Much to the chagrined surprise of Protestant leaders, the papal antichrist and its kingdom did not crumble as a prelude to the apocalypse. Just the opposite, especially after the Council of Trent, Roman Catholicism regrouped in Europe and solidified its spread around the world, from New France in North America to the Philippines in Asia. And much to the stricken dismay of Catholic leaders, the Protestant Reformation demonstrated its, its staying power, quite unlike those groups of medieval dissenters, Albigensians, Valdensians, Lollards, and Hussites, that Catholic church leaders working with non-ecclesiastical authorities had managed at least to contain and control through suppression. Because what was at stake was so important, God's truth and the prospect of eternal life in the hereafter, as well as the right ordering and flourishing of human life in the present, faith commitments played a part in the motivations of many rulers and their involvement in the religio-political conflicts, from the Koppel Wars of 1529 to 31 in Switzerland, through the Thirty Years' War and the English Civil Wars in the 1640s. These conflicts were destructive, expensive, and inconclusive. No Reformation-era rulers who engaged in them achieved their main goals in any lasting way, nor could they eliminate to their satisfaction those dissenters who subverted their aim of creating Christian communities coextensive with rulers' respective political communities. Resolute confessionalizing efforts were welcomed by the willingly devout, 
but they fostered reservoirs of resentment precisely among the grumbling foot draggers, the resistant eye rollers whose conformity was sought. This would provide a crucial part of the background for the widespread liberationist narrative of modernity, which traces a trajectory from oppressive pre-modern religious restrictiveness to modern individual secular autonomy, a story first forged in different enlightenment national contexts and no less evident today in various postmodern manifestations. By the mid 17th century, there were strong incentives to try to discover or to fashion persuasive ideological substitutes for Christianity, ones that would be capable of transcending deadlocked doctrinal controversies and the Renaissance revival of ancient philosophical skepticism to which the standoffs contributed. The most important and influential of these new substitutes was modern philosophy, which I mentioned before, beginning with Descartes, or if one prefers, with Francis Bacon. But philosophy, subsequently, a lot of philosophy majors in the, I hope I'm not popping anybody's bubble here. Philosophy, subsequently, has failed to provide consensual, substantive answers to life questions through reason alone, just as the Reformation had sought but failed to provide such answers through scripture alone. By the late 20th century, the social result was considerable skeptical wreckage. Indeed, one might say that after a long detour led by modern philosophy, a central thrust of much postmodernism represents a kind of return of the early modern skepticism that modern philosophy sought but failed to overcome, having instead replicated in a rationalist manner the unintended pluralism of Protestantism. Yet the eventual principal means of coping with unintended rival truth claims about what to believe and how to live would be not religious or philosophical, but rather institutional. Indeed, by the early 17th century, some institutional arrangements were emerging that looked like they might provide an alternative to confessionalization and the prospect of additional wars of more than religion. In the 1580s, urban leaders in that strange little new nation, the Dutch Republic, began experimenting in the direction opposite to the ambitions characteristic of so many other rulers. They were keenly aware of the ongoing conflicts between Catholics and Calvinists in France and wary of militant Calvinism and Catholicism alike. Hence, they privileged Reformed Protestantism as the public church, the Dutch Republic, but they did not make it the state religion. No one was compelled to attend its worship services or to belong to its communities of faith. And in fact, throughout the United Provinces, Reformed Protestants long constituted a minority, sometimes a tiny minority, of the population. Employing a de facto distinction between public and private space, the Dutch were essentially, if at first only implicitly, defining something new, religion. Considered as a matter of individually preferred interior beliefs, worship, and practices of devotion and therefore separable from the rest of life. The English ambassador to the United Provinces, William Temple, described the effects in 1673. Quote, the power of religion among them, the Dutch, where it is, lies in every man's heart. The appearance of it is but like a piece of humanity by which everyone falls most into the company or conversation of those whose customs and humors, whose talk and disposition 
they like best. And as in other places, tis in every man's choice with whom he will eat or lodge, with whom go to market or to court, so it seems to be here, with whom he will pray or go to church or associate in the service or worship of God. Nor is any more notice taken of what everyone chooses in these cases than in the other. Here, Christianity, or to use Temple's more abstract term, religion, has been subjectivized, interiorized, and compartmentalized. With Temple and others in the late 17th century, we see early articulations of what would turn out to be the institutional means for domesticating a disruptive, divided Christendom, simultaneously paving the way for modern Western secularism. Society, the public life of power and politics, economic transactions, and non-ecclesiastical institutions, and all other normal, non-sectarian social interactions, had in principle, at least embryonically, begun to find its way free of religion, which was at the same time becoming something separable from the rest of life. Such a society would doubtless differ from the forms of human life it was displacing, because Christianity itself was being radically redefined in a restricted manner of individual preference in place of something intended to inform shared public life. But so long as divided Christians continue to share so many other beliefs in common about morality, familial duty, participation in civic life, and so forth, the public effects of the toleration being pioneered by the Dutch would at first remain relatively minor. Disembedding of this sort, then, was a gradual, long-term process, very different from, for example, the violent de-Christianization of the early French Revolution, especially in 1793-94. The Dutch also discovered that increased religious toleration was good for business. One of the crucial developments that facilitated Christianity's gradual disembedding, a development intertwined with the innovative political practices of the Dutch, was their emergence as a maritime commercial power. And indeed, as Jan de Vries and Ad van der Waerde would have it, participants in the world's first modern economy. In critical ways, Dutch practices of acquisitiveness departed from traditional Christian views about the dangers of avarice and the pursuit of wealth, views that Lutheran, Reformed Protestant, and radical Protestant leaders in the 16th century had expressed with copious reference to scripture. But understandably, especially after the cataclysm of the Thirty Years' War, part of their own Eighty Years' War with the Spanish, the Dutch were not the only Christians who demonstrated that rather than sustain aggressive doctrinal controversy and perhaps risk further wars of more than religion, they would rather go shopping. Wouldn't you have joined them? They and many other Christians in Northwestern Europe across confessional lines began participating in what de Vries has called the industrious revolution the household-based uh, combination of harder, longer work to support increasing desires for the things that money could buy in the pursuit of comfort and enjoyment across an unprecedentedly wide swath of the population, beginning in the mid-17th century and later providing ballast in the late 18th century for the Industrial Revolution starting in Britain. Thus did Catholics and Protestants both begin willingly 
to permit their self-colonization by consumption and capitalism in a sharp departure from traditional Christian views about acquisitiveness. This was not an entirely new development, but part of a much longer trend. In previous centuries, its social base had been much smaller, restricted to medieval popes and members of the papal curia, as well as rulers and nobles, plus worldly-minded Renaissance merchants, princes, churchmen, and courtiers. But besides the expansion of the social base to embrace many more households, first in the Dutch Republic, what distinguished the 17th and the 18th century was the deliberate redefinition of acquisitiveness as something good, something positive. Whether it was viewed as part of God's providence among the 18th century New England pure Protestant ministers and merchants studied by Mark Valeri, essentially the distant ancestors of today's proponents of the prosperity gospel, or whether it was defended as ostensibly inherent in human nature by thinkers such as Mandeville, Montesquieu, and Hume. Increasingly, the desire for more and better stuff was regarded not as a sinful propensity to seek the fulfillment of one's own superfluous wants at the expense of meeting others' most basic needs to be resisted through ascetic self-denial. It was instead viewed as an unavoidable and therefore acceptable aspect of universal human nature whose effects would be benign and beneficial. In this respect, modern capitalism and consumerism should be seen less as an outgrowth of either Reformation-era Protestantism or Catholicism than as an alternative to and rejection of both, the impetus for which was influenced considerably by the failures of Reformation-era rulers to achieve their military and political objectives. What began in the United Provinces of the Netherlands and was channeled through Britain's Dutch apprenticeship was first and most influentially institutionalized in the United States in the late 18th century. By then, American men and women had been much more thoroughly enculturated in the Industrious Revolution. Not only in port cities such as Boston and Philadelphia, but as Anne Smart Martin has shown even in the rural backcountry of Virginia. Yet widespread acquisitiveness was only part of the picture. An institutional political solution was also important in order to address the issues raised by the colonies' religious pluralism inherited from Europe and the Reformation era. In the debates in December 1784 about whether the state of Virginia should continue to support publicly and financially the Anglican Church, as it had throughout the colonial era, James Madison's notes reflected the persistent relevance of issues that had vexed Europeans since the 1520s and now impinged on Americans. This is straight from James Madison's notes, quote, in what light are the biblical books to be viewed as dictated every letter by inspiration or the essential parts only or the matter in general, not the words? What sense the true one for if some doctrines be essential to Christianity, those who reject these, whatever name they take, are no Christian society? Is it Trinitarianism, Arianism, Socinianism? Is it salvation by faith or works also, by free grace or free will, etc., etc., etc.? Here we have the central problem created by Luther's turn to Scripture alone, carried forward and transposed in the context of the American founding fathers. 
The solution, in retrospect, seems simple and obvious, namely, permit everyone to believe as they please, worship as they wish, in exchange for obedience to the state's laws. Essentially, a democratization of Luther's here I stand, but combined with a radically changed meaning and a much narrowed scope of religion, was prompted by the disruptions of the Reformation era. What William Temple had observed about the Dutch in the 1670s was elevated by Madison into a maxim, quote, it is the duty of every man to render to the creator such homage and such only as he believes to be acceptable to him, unquote. So long as they obeyed the state's laws, citizens could believe whatever they wanted, at least in principle, and worship or not as they wished. As Thomas Paine put it in 1794, my own mind is my own church. The principal founding documents of the United States are deliberately formal and empty with respect to answers about life's most fundamental questions. Americans were endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, including life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But there was no mention of how one ought to live, how freedom should be exercised, or in what the pursuit of happiness consisted. That was, of course, the point. All this was deliberately left to individual discretion, even though shared public life continued to depend in large measure and in practice on the substantive values and virtues that Americans absorb through the most important institutions responsible for inculcating them, namely churches and families, whose members were, in John Butler's phrase, awash in a sea of faith. A formal ethics of politically protected individual rights, not a substantive ethics of the good over which Christians had quarreled so consequentially in the Reformation era, would provide the framework for public morality in the United States. This despite the fact that public morality continued to depend for its substantive content on vigorous, mostly English-speaking Protestant churches, the influence of which increased beginning with the evangelical revival of the 1790s, so-called Second Great Awakening. Federal disestablishment of churches could and did work as well as it did because of this symbiotic relationship. The effects of this symbiosis struck Alexis de Tocqueville during his American visit in the early 1830s. Quote, there is an innumerable multitude of sects in the United States, CTS, especially with undergraduates, I often have to make clear. <laughs> You're listening, that's good. An innumerable multitude of sects in the United States. They are all different in the worship they offer to the creator, but all agree concerning the duties of men to one another. So their members shared a sense of moral responsibilities and obligations that could and did inform public life, despite federal disestablishment and the institutional separation of church and state. Tocqueville continues, each sect worships God in its own fashion, but all preach the same morality in the name of God. Indeed, all the sects in the United States belong to the great unity of Christendom, and Christian morality is everywhere the same. That is, as a contingent sociological fact, the large majority of Americans happened still to share a moral outlook that informed public life at the time, which meant that religion, as Tocqueville famously said, quote, should therefore be considered as the first of their political institutions. 
In effect, disestablishment and freedom of religion were contributing to the cohesion that early modern European confessional regimes had sought to achieve through frequently coercive established churches, not to mention the wars of more than religion. But the subsequent history of the US has demonstrated the instability of this social reality and its political effects. The country's underlying political and legal framework was deliberately without prescriptive content about life's most basic questions. And it protected individual rights because of the enduring doctrinal disagreements and their associated social divisiveness inherited from the Reformation era. Individuals had to be protected because individuals disagreed about what was true and how to live. To be sure, public social life, politics, and morality could continue to be influenced by religion under the terms of disestablishment and the political protection of individual religious freedom. But they would actually be so influenced only if individual citizens, in fact, exercised their freedom in ways that concretely shaped domains of life that were in principle now officially insulated from religion. If citizens started collectively and beh habitually behaving differently, the influence of religion on public life would change accordingly. If, say, through an intensification of the consumption practices that had marked American life since the colonial era, resulting in recent decades, what the sociologist Sigmund Bauman has analyzed as a distinctively consumerist rather than a merely industrial society. This is what seems to have happened in the US, especially since the Second World War and most visibly since the 1960s. Religion hasn't gone away, nor have most Americans stopped self-identifying as Christians of one sort or another, notwithstanding the recent quite dramatic decrease in the percentage of those who do so uh, identified in the rise of the nuns, not the habit-wearing type, but the N-O-N-E-S type. But nothing besides consumerism has taken the place of any shared substantive, politically and socially efficacious views about how people ought to live, how they should exercise their freedom, and how happiness ought to be pursued. What Tocqueville observed in the 1830s is emphatically no longer the case. Americans do not agree about even their basic duties to one another, nor, to put it mildly, do they all preach the same morality. Indeed, since the election of 2016, it seems we don't even share a remotely a common epistemology a set of common norms and criteria about how we know what we know or claim to know. I mean, already in February of 2017, I gave a talk and I said, who among professional philosophers would ever imagine that epistemology was, is now the most important public problem that we have in the United States? But here we are. In contrast to Western European countries, religion remains very widespread in the United States, but it no longer informs American society at large in any coherent way because religious believers as a whole are divided on every socially and morally significant issue in ways that reflect the divisions of American political life in general. One can hardly ask for a more dramatic demonstration of this than what we've seen on a daily basis over the last six or seven years. In the wake of the dissolution and dismantling of the American Protestant moral establishment analyzed by David Sahat, individuals are free to define and determine the good for themselves and to live as they please within the state's laws, or indeed, to try to change them. This is the real key to secularization, facilitated in the long term by the politically protected individual freedom of religion that itself sought to address 
the unintended Christian pluralism inherited from the Reformation era. As long as you are politically quiescent, you can believe whatever you want, live however you please, change what you believe and how you live, however you wish and for whatever reason or no reason, without regard for anyone else. It's all up to you. Individual choice per se is the summum bonum. The empirical result is our contemporary pluralism, its attendant political frictions and factions, the growing incivility of which in public life in recent decades has reached a distressingly high level in recent years. One corollary, it seems to me, the absence of shared assumptions about values, priorities, morality, and meaning is the persistence of our bumper sticker political discourse in which in what Anthony Grafton already some years ago called our poisoned public sphere. That was said in about 2011 or 12, how prophetic it was. It risks laughable understatement now to describe it as a discourse that's short on rigor and filled with rancor. On the other hand, thinking globally for a moment about our consumerism, why should we care about the lives and problems of people we don't know? Those outsourced laborers in China or Mexico, Bangladesh or Vietnam, who make the stuff we buy, or the rural or urban poor in our own country for that matter, when we can go online, pull out the credit card and enjoy some retail therapy. Ignoring others is perfectly constitutional. It's how we can choose to live in exercising our liberty in the pursuit of happiness. Even though American per capita income increased eightfold in real terms during the 20th century, we now live in a society without an acquisitive ceiling, in which there's literally no such thing as too much, provided one has the financial means to do as one pleases. This is the latter-day secularized outcome of early modern Christians' self-colonization by capitalism and consumption. It has been functioning within our political and legal system more or less to hold together the open-ended pluralism that is the unintended latter-day ideological outcome of the Reformation. Until Brexit and the election in 2016, to give two examples, showed that there was some political price to be paid for the chasms of inequality opened by nearly four decades of economic neoliberalism since the 1980s, a price paid in this instance via angry resentment, the ballot box. To be sure, modern liberalism found a way to address the serious problems of coexistence among contentious Christians and the failure of antagonistic early modern confessional rulers to achieve their objectives. We shouldn't lose sight of that, it's true. Ideas and institutions central to modern liberal democracies are interrelated aspects of the ways in which Western modernity has addressed problems inherited from the Reformation era as a reaction, not as an outgrowth. These include individual freedom and autonomy, freedom of religion, religious toleration, the separation of church and state, secular public discourse, the secularization of knowledge, and the pursuit of human fulfillment through material well-being. But the rights that modern liberalism protects have facilitated more than the solution to an inherited political problem. Consider, for example, the relationship between consumerism as an expression of the exercise of individual rights and the environmental impact, the industrial manufacturing that produces all that stuff. Of course, becoming increasingly untenable, I'd say impossible, you could hope that the findings right, pertaining to the Anthropocene epoch 
reinforced by on a daily basis now from so many teams of scientists and so many different disciplines from around the world have nothing really to do with human activity. We're simply experiencing another unprecedentedly rapid upswing in the Earth's natural warming and cooling cycles. Um, what seems certain now, though, is that that's not what we're experiencing. What we're, what we're seeing is the effect cumulatively, collectively, and unintentionally of massive amounts of human desires on the natural world itself. The acquisitiveness sanctioned for centuries as rational self-interest and the high road to human happiness is actually endangering the biogeosphere that makes all human and other life possible. No wonder then that some defenders of individual rights, economic deregulation and free enterprise are so keen to dismiss concerns about global warming as politically motivated hot air. Long-term processes of secularization in the Western world have been primarily an attempt to control religion by restricting and redefining it, to resolve the difficulties that followed in the wake of the Reformation. These processes are not an extension or a fulfillment of the Lutheranism or the Reformed Protestantism of the Reformation period. Choosing your own beliefs and values, whether religious or not, buying as much as you want of whatever you want, are worlds away from the freedom of a Christian espoused by Martin Luther or any other 16th century reformer. And when we see what modern freedom can mean in practice, in terms of choosing to believe and support whatever you prefer, with or without evidence, again, one has only to consider what's transpired over the last few years in the United States and continues to unfold on a daily basis, we get some sense of just how far-reaching have been the modern institutional and ideological endeavors to deal with the problems inherited from the Reformation era. So in brief and by way of conclusion, that's how the Reformation led to the secularization of society and why it still matters, whether we like it or not. It indirectly created the world we inhabit, regardless of what we believe or care about, by making Christianity itself into an enduring pervasive problem that had to be addressed. The way it was addressed redefined religion and made Christianity separable from the rest of life. And now increasingly we see evidence of the consequences of that separation. And we will, I'm sure, continue to see evidence of it facilitated by the combination of politically protected individual preferences, ever expanding technological wizardry, and the power of money distributed with radical inequality, some of the expressions of which we probably can't imagine, which will probably be as unexpected as were the consequences of the Reformation five centuries ago. So whatever one makes of our current situation, whatever one thinks we ought to do next, at whatever scale of engagement and action, it seems to me we're well advised to acknowledge the character of that situation and how we got to where we are. It presents challenges to all of us, regardless of the specific geographical, institutional, and social locations we inhabit, and regardless of what we believe. Thank you.